Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you here. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Cornerstone. I'll invite you to grab a copy of the scriptures and uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's what um, we'll be anchoring uh, our teaching uh, out of uh, today. We are in the midst of a uh, campaign here at Cornerstone. We're calling Open Doors, where we are uh, trying to rally ourselves to be a community of hospitality at every level. We think that in our polarized, hyper-polarized, hyper-busy world, that one of the great doors to the gospel, to the open doors into our community with the gospel of Jesus is to become a people of hospitality, to be a, a community where you are welcome to belong even before you believe that you are, um, that we embrace one another, that we embrace, in fact, the stranger, that we embrace those who are different uh, from us. And part of that, of course, is uh, the renovation and kind of redevelopment of this property, and so that we as a people would be in our, at our corporate level, uh, a people of welcome, a people where there is space for us to welcome more of our friends and family members, neighbors and co-workers to uh, get to know Jesus and his church. One of the things I've been meaning to mention for a while now is that one of the ways, a really simple way that we could be hospitable, those who are more long-termers here, is, um, is to create space out here by coming here. The, uh, the back row has been voted the, uh, the, favorite, uh, the, the, the favorite seat, 26 years running. And so if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to maybe kind of make our, some of our guests feel more comfortable, there's some prime seating available, three, like three benches. And Sherry's got it all to herself right now. So, and especially as we get our kids after our connection time, um, we're even more crowded, and uh, your kids will see better if you're at the front. You can read the lyrics better. Um, just, a, just a thought that um, would love for you to come forward and, uh, and sit near the front. Page 820 in the Red Pew Bibles is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so uh, while we're in this campaign, we are talking about some of the core values, the guiding principles that as we make changes... As we um, maybe get distra- have the temptation toward distraction, what are the plumb lines for us? What are some values that we need to continue to hold on to? And as elders and pastors, over the last while, we have been wrestling with this and saying, what are the, the core values? And, um, and this precedes even talk of renovation and, and, and all of that. And one of the values we, we talked about last week was our message is Jesus, that we need to be rock solid, 100% committed to proclaiming good news, the good news of Jesus. Um, today we're talking about the value that generosity is our privilege, that we're, we, we aren't a generous people just because we have to, but because we get to be. And uh, maybe you, right now you're like, yeah, right. You're talking about generosity because you want me to give to your campaign. Um, and, and maybe your alarm bells are going and saying, here we go again. The church is always talking about money. Well, and that, that might be a fair criticism. But I just completed this week, today, actually, marks seven years of me as pastor at Cornerstone. Um, I, thank you. I think there's a seven years. I think I think there's a year of jubilee coming or something. But um, 
So in those seven years, I've preached uh, about just a little over 300 sermons. And you're, some of you are like, wow, it feels like way more. Um, so I preached about 300 sermons. I went through them this week. About four of them are about money. So a little more than 1%. How, how much of your life, 1% of your life, of your thinking, is about money? How, how, many of our, how much of our lives revolve around money? How much of our problems, our worries, or the complexities of our life have to do with money? How much of the Bible, how much of the words of Jesus is about money? In fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke is almost entirely about money. So I was convicted. I've got to preach about money more. <laughs> Next seven years, I've got to make up for it. But... But, like, you probably feel for me, even if maybe if you could put yourself in my shoes for a minute. Not only am I talking about money and generosity and greed, I'm also talking about Jesus. So, um, like, is there more awkward conversations out in, <laughs> in our culture today than to talk about, you know, Jesus and money? <laughs> like, um, so, but we want to do that because we, we truly believe that generosity is our privilege. And in fact, I think what the scriptures, if I could summarize what the entire scriptures say about money, is that unless our attitude, unless we embrace the attitude of God towards our money, we won't actually make any spiritual progress. We won't actually make spiritual growth unless the attitude, the thinking of Jesus towards money becomes ours. So a guiding principle for us is what is the generous thing to do? And as Leaders in this church, that's what wants, we want to, draw, want to drive our decisions. If we're forced with, to a decision, one of the things that we want to tip our, our, our de- decision in one way is, what's the generous thing to do? What's the generous thing to do? Generosity is a reflexive response to grace, and we're going to see that in this passage here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That generosity is actually a reflex, that when we... When grace becomes real to us, that our reflex, our response, our instinct is towards generosity. So let's read this together. I'm going to skip a section in the middle just for time, but you can pick that up at home as well. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. And then they didn't do so as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now we're going to skip down to chapter 9, verse 6. It continues on this theme, even in this part, part that I'm not reading here. 
he continues on this theme of, of generosity, and he says this in beginning in verse 6 of chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man or woman should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work, as it is written. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enrich the har- enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is God's word to us this morning. First thought this morning, and it's, it's, it's kind of assumed in this passage, and I'll explain how in, in a bit, but um, if we look at the entire scripture, uh, a thought that we need to have as the scripture talks about money is that wealth uh, carries with it a spiritual danger, that wealth is actually spiritually dangerous. Now, the Bible is actually very positive um, about wealth creation and, and hard work. Don't, don't hear me saying that the Bible is communist and, and the Bible is anti-rich folk. The, the Bible is very positive about wealth creation, about hard work, about industriousness, about building businesses and, and, and being strategic and being wise, creating wealth. The Bible is not communist. But the Bible also warns of the corrupting power of money. The, the, the scriptures would not advocate unbridled capitalism either. The Bible warns of the corrupting power of money. Jesus says, for example, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And to which all of his disciples were like, what? That makes no sense. We assumed that rich people were rich because they were blessed by God. That, that God was happy with them. That's why they were rich. That's why they were so abundantly blessed, that we assumed that those who were rich were living under the favor, the grace, the, the, the good pleasure of God. And Jesus says, actually, it's harder for a camel, the largest animal that the Jewish people would have known, to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest man-made object that, that, that they would have known. He says, but what's impossible with God is possible with man. So he's not saying it's impossible, that it will never happen. But Jesus is saying, don't assume that because you're rich, you're blessed by God. In fact, the scriptures talk about the righteous rich and the righteous and the unrighteous rich. The Bible also talks about the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. That we can't decide, that we can't determine whether someone is in right relationship with God based on the fact whether they're rich or poor. All right, so wealth has a spiritual danger to it. Here's a few of the, the dangers that wealth has, that the scriptures would talk about. 
The first would be that um, the more wealthy you are, the more the temptation to dishonesty. The, the more successful, actually, the more tempting dishonest gain is. That might seem contradictory. It might seem non-intuitive. Uh, but the truth is, is if you are making hundreds, you'll be tempted to cheat to make hundreds. But if you're making thousands, you'll be tempted to cheat to make thousands. If you're making millions, you'll be tempted to cheat to make millions more. The, the Proverbs say that the dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord. Dishonest scales, which would be how they measure out um, goods. And so you might have a, 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 a weight that is a pound. It's supposed to be a pound. And so if you want to buy a pound of flour, you, you put the pound of uh, the, the measure on, on one side of the scale and you measure out the flour until it evens out. Well, some people would shave off those those, those weights, so it's a little bit, tiny bit less than a pound, and so people are getting a little bit less than a pound of flour. And God says that's an abomination. Like on the level of sexual immorality to God. And we don't, we don't have, you know, scales like that anymore, but we have accounting. We have little lies. We have misdirections. We have, right... We are overpowering, using your wealth as a, as a bully tactic to get your own way. And dishonesty with respect to, to money has a hardening and blinding effect. We can justify it. We justify it, and so it hardens us, and we become blind to it. Wealth is also spiritually dangerous because it has an addicting power. That the more you have, actually, the more denial you have about your wealth. For example, all studies, Christian and otherwise, in the church and otherwise, which would say that the more wealthy you are, the smaller the percentage of your income you give away. You might say, well, that's, that's surprising. That doesn't make any sense. I hear about these people giving millions. Yeah, but they're making tens and tens and tens of millions away. That, in fact, even in the church, that um, the... The wealthier you are, the less inclined you are, the smaller the percentage that wealthy people give. As, your, as our income goes up, so do our expenses. And what used to be a luxury becomes pretty normal for me to have. There's, the reality is, is there's always people in your bracket who make some more than you, and there are always people in the bracket above you. And so the rich are always someone else. And in fact, Test yourself when, when I'm talking about the rich, where you're like, mm, yeah, over there, that person, those people, they're the rich ones, instead of thinking, you know what, we're, we're all rich. We're all rich. Globally, historically, we're all rich. But the rich is always someone else. And we always need a little bit more. The richer we get, the, the more we need. The more we want more of it. Wealth is spiritually dangerous because it makes us proud or it tempts us towards pride. It doesn't always make us pride, proudful, prideful. Here's a key life skill. In fact, probably one of the, key, one of the greatest key life skills that, um, that you, we could ever learn is the ability to repent, the ability to admit that we are wrong. That is, that is a key life skill. And the ability to admit that you're wrong quickly. 
Like, it not taking five years for you to say, eh, yeah, I was actually wrong. What I did was wrong. The, the ability to repent and admit that we were wrong without it being traumatic. Like, that's a key life skill. And pride will destroy that skill. And nothing inflates pride like wealth. When we're, when we, as we gain wealth, as we gain more money, we, can, we begin to think, huh, I'm pretty good at making money. I'm smart at making money. Which soon translates to, I'm pretty good. I'm smart at, at almost everything. Which translates to, I'm better than most. And I could probably do a better job at doing this than that person. I could run any business. I could run any organization. Fourthly, wealth is spiritually dangerous because there's a fall, it gives us a false sense of security. It gives us a false sense of security. You see, the more money we have, the more options we have. Right? It, as, we, as we accumulate wealth, we can, you know, maybe prepare for the loss of a job or... But but we, we seek to find our security in our wealth, we actually become so incredibly unprepared for other trials of life, for the loss of loved ones, for sickness, for the loss of our health. It makes, it, wealth often makes us so busy, we, can't, we don't have the time to develop character. You know, one of the, one of the questions that, um, on, to be honest and transparent, one of the questions we've been asking as, a, as leaders of this church, is, so why are people coming less frequently than they used to? So if you look back 10 years ago, you know, most people who are committed to a, a, a local church were, you know, gathering together on Sundays probably three or four times a month. And kind of now, and we know this because we take attendance in our kids' ministry, so at least among young families, we can tell, yeah, kind of averages like one or two times a month for a lot of folks. And, like, these are committed folks. They're, maybe you're here. Like, you're committed. Like, you don't have another church. It's not like you're playing three churches on the time. But one of our theories is that the more wealth we have, the more options we have. There's more things to do. It creates new, more opportunities for us. We get away for the weekend more often. We, our kids are on travel sports teams or whatever it is. But there's more options that take us away from the regular coming under the preached word of God to develop our character. It's all this false sense of security. Look at this verse from Proverbs 18. It's a well-known one. We sing songs about it. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Right? We, you, you know this verse. If you're, if, you've grown up, if you're church folk, you know this verse. You've probably sung it to a tune at some point. The name of the Lord. So the character of God is like a strong tower. It's, it's our security. Who God is to us becomes our security. Do you know the next verse? Put it up, Steve. The next verse says this, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. He's saying the accumulation of wealth gives this sense of security, at least in our imagination, that if I have enough, then I'll be secure. I can withstand any storm. 
then, I, then I'll, now I'll be able to withstand any storm if as long as I have enough wealth. And so kind of taking all of this together, and I'm hoping I'm not like, how do you like the sermon so far? <laughs> that more than any of the other substitute, possible substitutes for God, we call those idols in the scripture, that more than any of the other possible substitutes for God, money seems to offer what only God can give. Significance, security, identity. And so generosity is a matter of the heart. And, and what's, what seems to be maybe coming up is that our hearts are not naturally generous. So there's a problem here. Generosity is a matter of the heart, but our hearts are not naturally generous. And so second thought today, and here's where we'll turn a corner and begin to feel better, <laughs> is that only grace can change our hearts. That only grace can actually change our hearts that are not naturally generous. <coughs> this passage here that, um, that we read from 2 Corinthians is about the, a collection that Paul's taken for famine relief for Christians that are living in Jerusalem. And he is writing to the... the Corinthians, these Christians who live in Greece, and he's talking to them about other Christians who live in Macedonia, the Macedonian churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And he's saying that these churches in Macedonia, even though these Christians are extremely poor, they've been persecuted, and so they've lost jobs, and they've, they've had their property plundered, they're, they're incredibly poor, that yet in the face of this, they were radically generous from the heart. That's what the word radical means, from the heart. It says that he talks about the depth of their poverty, which literally says their rock bottom poverty, that out of rock bottom poverty, they gave generously. In fact, their, their generosity was overflowing. It was overflowing out of the, the, the surrender of their lives. He says they didn't do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. They were surrendered to the Lord, and out of that, gave generously. It's the great litmus test of the reality of our faith. Are we willing? to give in risky and sacrificial ways. He says they gave beyond their means. He, he, went, they, he says they didn't only give as they were able, they went beyond their ability. Verse 4, verse 3, sorry. They went beyond their ability. They, they gave in ways that were practically impossible, like crazy, how, where is that going to come from? Where did that come from? It says they, they weren't compelled. They weren't pressured to do that. No one was they were, in fact, begging. They were pleading for the opportunity to participate. It was free will. And they, they did it joyfully. It counted as a pleasure, as a privilege to, to give. Which is really where this generosity is our privilege comes from. That, that we, get, we count the, the opportunity to be generous to the poor and for gospel ministry as a privilege, as a privilege, as a pleasure. But here's the truth. Where, what is the source of the generosity of the Macedonians? Verse 1 tells us. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given them. It's, grace is the source of their generosity. That the, the grace of God was moving deeper and deeper into their hearts which propelled them in generous living. What is grace? What is grace? For you know, verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich? That's the grace of God. The grace of God is the free and self-determined love of God, overflowing generously to sinful and undeserving people. That's the grace of God. It's the free, self-determined love of God, generously overflowing to undeserving people. And the grace of God is seen most clearly in the giving of His Son. In the giving of His Son. And so that's why we talk at, at Christmas time in the Advent season, we don't talk, just talk about Jesus being born, we talk about Jesus being given. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. For unto us a Son Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That, the, that Jesus is not just, wasn't just born, but he was given as a gift. That though he was rich, though he existed in the glories of heaven, though he existed in the perfections of the Trinity, though he had the place of highest honor, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. He left the glories of heaven. He was born in a stable. He, he did blue-collar work as a carpenter. He, he's, he, he, did, he entered into ministry and was able to say, when people say, I want to follow you, he says, well, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but I don't have anywhere where I lay my head. I'm a homeless guy. And not only that, the judge of the cosmos then became condemned by a human court. That God himself allowed a minimum wage Roman soldier to drive spikes through his wrist. That the boundless one was bound to a cross and gave his life, didn't tithe his blood, he poured out his blood, he gave his life. And not only that, not only how he died, but why he died. He died in our place, that for our sakes, the one who was rich became poor. It was for us, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. That we, who are criminals awaiting a terrible sentence, can now become heirs awaiting an incredible inheritance. That, that we who were, who were clothed in the rags, the filthy rags of our sin, could have robes of righteousness given to us. That we can now be free from condemnation, given friendship with God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, assured of the promise that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, if he didn't withhold his son from us, his only son, how will he not also along with him get freely give us all things? Do you hear that promise? That if God did not withhold his one and only son from us, how will he not also, along with his son, freely give us all things? That's incredible promises. And here's the point that Paul's making here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's saying, when you experience that generosity of God, when you experience that grace, your reflex is to become a generous person. Your reflex is to become a generous person. An experience of the gospel always leads to generosity. That's why he's saying, I'm not commanding you. I'm giving you no command. I'm not, I'm not laying a, 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 a rule on you. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trying to test you. He says, I'm testing you. This, is a, this reveals some things about us. You see, you know you're in love with someone when you want to give them everything. That's why, we, that's why prenuptial agreements right, are, a, are a joke. When you're in love with someone, you don't want to withhold from them. You want to freely give everything. Paul calls the giving a, a confession of the gospel. Verse 13 of chapter 9. Because of the service of giving, 
which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel, that our generous giving, and I don't just mean passing the bag here later on. That's, generosity goes beyond that. But it includes that. It's not less than that. But it's actually a confession of the gospel that, that as we give, as we live generously with our time, with our talents, with our treasure, some of us it's easy to write a check. But, but time is more valuable. We got, we have, it's harder for us to give time to someone. But as we live generously, it's actually a confession of the gospel saying God is a generous God. That God freely gives. God loves to give. And that's why I love to give as well. You say, well, yeah, only grace can change our hearts. And by the way there, if you ever, I love this little acrostic or whatever, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, that's what grace is. God's riches to us at Christ's expense. He paid for them and he freely gives us all things. Justification, sanctification, glorification, he gives it all to us freely. That's grace. Teach your kids that one. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. You say, well, I know lots of people who are generous, and they're not Christians. And yes, you know what? God has given common grace, whereas his general kindness to humanity, which does result in generous people. But what are the motives? What are the motives? There's... We can, give, we can give for a lot, of, a lot of reasons, right? A motive is kind of the motor, the thing that drives us. What's the, what's the thing that's driving generosity? Is it guilt? I feel bad for having so much, and I see these pictures of kids in Burundi, and I feel guilty that I have so much, so I better give a bit. Is it reputation enhancement? A lot of giving, a lot of philanthropy out in the world is reputation enhancement. I want to be known as a generous person. A lot of giving in the church is for gain. We're trying to make God our debtor. We're trying to gain right standing with him, which is an offense to him. To say that God owes me now. I've given, so you owe me. You owe me with a good life. You owe me to give me grace. You owe me to forgive my sins because I've given. You know, all of those motives, guilt, reputation, enhancement, gain, all of those motives only work if you have a lot of money. Only if you have money to give. But Paul's saying, these Macedonians, the grace of God changed them so much that even in financial struggles they were giving. Even in financial struggles they were giving. You say, I can't give, I'm, I'm struggling financially right now. I think Paul is saying in this passage that the reason you're not giving isn't, has nothing to do with the availability of resources. So what is grace-motivated giving? It's our third thought. What's grace-motivated giving? First, grace-motivated giving, grace-giving is systematic and strategic. Sometimes as a pastor, I get asked, how much do I have to give? How much? So, you know, get practical already. How much do I have to give? And I have at times said, you know, I just think that's the wrong question. That's like a law question. How much do I have to? Maybe a better question is, why don't I want to give more? Why don't I want to give more? 
It's not a New Testament question. Why don't you want to give more? See, the New Testament question is, is grace. It's grace. Now, at the same time, the New Testament would teach systematic giving, that as you're paid, as you receive income, a portion of that you would give away. I think scripturally, a 10% is a good place to start. That's the Old Testament, although some would say there were multiple tithes in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, generally speaking, the people of God, the Israelites, would take 10% of their income and bring that to the temple for the work of the temple and for the relief of the poor. So for the ministry of the gospel and for relief for the poor, that 10% is a good place to start. But it's also strategic that there are also, um, at times, opportunities to make a significant difference, which is where we're at right now, where, where your elders and pastors are coming and saying, we think there's an opportunity for us, for future generations, to make a, a, a significant step forward in ministry that will change us as a church and change our community. And so there's opportunities for systematic, you know, regular, ongoing giving, and there's strategic opportunities to make significant differences. Grace giving is proportional and sacrificial. Chapter 8, verse 12. For the willingness is there, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So if you have a lot, give a lot. If you don't have a lot, you don't give a lot. That there's proportion. But the New Testament standard of giving is really sacrificial giving, is really being willing to live on less. Randy Alcorn has a great little book called The Treasure Principle. I highly recommend it if you have not read this. It's really short, four little chapters, The Treasure Principle. You can get it on Amazon. You'll probably have it this week for four bucks or something. Little book, Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle, where one of his main points is often, you know what, God increases your means not to increase your standard of living, but to increase your standard of giving. To multiply your seed for sowing. You know, the NIV, which I read, is an unfortunate translation of chapter 9, verse 10, where he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will also supply and increase your store of seed. Literally, it says, Your seed for sowing. It's not seed for hoarding, it's seed for sowing. It's seed for sowing. He'll multiply your seed for sowing. Your seed is, is not to hoard, but to, to sow. You know, so often we want to cling to possessions. And a great motivator there is fear. What about me? What will happen to me? Who will take care of me? But the Old Testament... Again, again, kind of bare minimum, like if a big principle is the Old Testament is bare minimum, whereas the New Testament raises the bar. For the, they gave out of their first fruits before you knew how much you had, not out of your surplus. You see, natural for us is to see, well, I'm going to wait and see how much do I have, how much am I going to make, and so how, can I, how much can I afford to give without really cutting into how I want to live. So I, I can still do all the things I want to do. I can still wear all the clothes I want to wear. I can still go to all the places I want to go. But really, the New Testament says, give till it hurts. Give until it changes you the way you live in a measurable way. Third, grace giving is joyful. It's joyful because we, we understand that everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. You're like, that's hard. That's hard. 
I worked hard for that money. I made some really good decisions with the intellect who gave you, with the talent who gave you, with the opportunities who gave you. Tim Keller often says, you could have been born in the 13th century in Tibet. You wouldn't be so cool then. <laughs> it's true. You were, we were born, we didn't choose to be born in wherever you were born to live in here in Niagara in the 20th century with the opportunities God's given you, with the talents he's given you. It's joyful giving because everything we have is a gift. It hurts on the outside, but not on the inside. God loves a hilarious giver, a cheerful giver. It's the word hilarious. Like it's just such a privilege to give. Not reluctant, not remorseful. Friends, if you can't give joyfully, don't misrepresent God and give. God is a joyful giver. He didn't give his son remorsefully. He didn't give his son reluctantly. So if you can't give joyfully, don't misrepresent God and give. You see, Jesus teaches that money goes effortlessly to where our treasure is. Our money, I talked about money as an idol. Money may not be your idol, but money reveals your idol. Because where your treasure is, there, where, your, where your heart is, there your treasure is also, Jesus says. Your money goes, flows effortlessly to what your heart treasures. So, silly example, embarrassing example. Uh, I kind of like to be thought of as a smart person. I kind of want you to think that I'm well-read, that I've, uh, I understand things, that uh, I've, I've got interesting stories, that I've... I want you to think well of me in that way. And so part of my identity is approval of others, but it's specifically with respect to thinking that, that I'm pretty smart. That would be an idol for me. Whereas it replaces the approval that only God can give. And so why do I bring that up? Well, it doesn't hurt at all for me to spend money on books. I, like, I could go into a bookstore and drop a bundle. Easy. Because your heart goes effortlessly to where your treasure is. Your treasure goes ultimately, easily, to where your heart is, to what your heart truly treasures. That's how it works. Your money, if money isn't your idol, it will reveal what is. And the call is to give not reluctantly, but to give joyfully. Because our heart treasures. We want more people to come to know Jesus. And so we're going to give to things where more people can come to know Jesus. Last, lastly, over time already. Lastly, grace giving does come with divine rewards. Verse 6 of chapter 9. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is different than the law of the harvest, which says you reap what you sow. This is you reap how you sow. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you plant a couple of tomato plants, you'll get some tomatoes. If you plant hundreds, you'll get lots of tomatoes. That's what this is saying. Now listen, you plant tomato seeds. Do you get, what do you get back? Tomato seeds? No, you get back fruit. You get back something different. So this is not saying, like some televangelist you could watch on the, on the TV tonight, is saying that, hey, if you give 10 bucks, God's going to send 1,000. If you give me 10 bucks, I'm sure God will find a way of giving you 10, 000, 1,000 bucks. That's not what it's saying. He says, 
He's saying, don't love your seeds so much that you, that you, that you hoard on to them and, and not actually invest them, not actually throw them in the ground. Now, he does say that God will supply all your needs, that you'll actually have abundance. He says that in chapter 9, verse 8 and 10, that there are material blessings that are associated with living a generous life. But more than that, there's life transformation. He who supplies seed, verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of feed or your seed for sowing and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. This, this life that's in right relationship with God. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. This harvest of righteousness. You see, generous living unleashes other virtues in you. It frees you from fear and the love of money like nothing else can. That generosity actually breaks idolatry, breaks strongholds of fear. If you come out to one of our campaign vision nights, you'll hear a testimony of someone who could say, when I gave in a crazy kind of way, and in a fear-producing kind of way, God actually broke a stronghold of fear and poverty in my life. A good friend of mine. You see, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Our heart will move towards the things that God loves. When we give generously to the things that God is all about, compassion, mercy, integrity, faithfulness, displaying the character and love of God, it'll enrich your marriage, it'll enrich your prayer life. And so generosity, friends, is our privilege, motivated by the grace of God that freely gives to us. We want that to be true of us corporately as a church. And in fact, um, in your regular tithes and offerings that you give, that we all give uh, weekly here and our gatherings, over a third of that goes out to generously bless others, other ministries. All of it is ideally used to bless others. It's all mission. 100% of it is the mission of God to make Jesus known, but over a third of that goes out to other places and other ministries like our camp, like schools, like Burundi, like Thailand like planting churches here in Canada, and we're committed to this, and that will continue to be the way we operate as a church. And so we preach grace. We preach the truth that Jesus gave past the point where it changed his life. He gave to the point where it cost his life. Our message is Jesus, and we will preach the gospel. And friends, maybe this message today has shone a bit of a light into your heart. And you say, you have to say, you know what? I'm not generous, and the reason I'm not truly generous, I don't, the reason I don't love to give, the reason I'm not a giving person, the reason I'm not scheming how to give more and more for the poor and for gospel ministry is because the grace of God hasn't really invaded my heart. And the invitation today is to hear good news for greedy people. Jesus came to die for greedy people like us. People who love to hoard, people who out of fear clench on to the little that God has given us. He died for you, and grace is available for greedy people. That though he that though he was rich for our sakes, for your sake, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So, Father in heaven, would you make us a generous people, not out of compulsion? not out of arm twisting, not out of manipulation, but simply as a reflex to the great grace that was given us in the Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, we look to you and we praise you for your amazing, 
grace towards us that's so free, that's so relentless, that's so unending. And so, Lord, would you even inspire our praises as we worship you in the moments to come now. In Jesus' name, amen.